for you. <laughs> you. Welcome. This is a special Any Given Wednesday only edition of the BS Podcast. We tape these shows and we only have a half hour for the actual show. But I like to go long for them when I have the guests. So we always end up having a bunch of extra content. And that was actually one of the goals of the show because I think the old school format of of these shows is the guest just comes out, you tape, maybe they're on for six, seven, eight, nine minutes, and then they leave. And my thinking was if I'm going to have some of these celebrities on, why wouldn't I want to have them for longer than that? Why wouldn't I want to go in a bunch of different directions, try some stuff, do do some different gimmicks, and try to leverage the time I have for as much content as possible? HBO is HBO now. Uh, we have YouTube. We have this podcast. We have a bunch of places to put the extra material. And actually, if you go to the Any Given Wednesday page on HBO Now, they have a new splash page going up that really easily assembles all these clips so you can watch all this stuff. And it's all on there from the first four episodes. So what we're going to do right now is run seven different extra clips that were not on the first four episodes of the show that uh, we're going to run now just the audio of. And I, I actually think they really lend themselves well to the podcast form, which is why I wanted to do it. So these clips include Charles Barkley, Ben Affleck, Mark Cuban and Malcolm Gladwell, Bill Hader, Joe Rogan, Chris Bosh and Anthony Anderson, and Aaron Rodgers. And the first one up is Charles Barkley. We did a speed round with him. That was so much fun. Uh, it could have gone on for two hours. I had so many questions. We had to cut it down to 12 minutes. But really the goal of this was to find out what a Cliff Robinson shower was. They, I think it was like three or four years ago on TNT. After a game, they talked about a Cliff Robinson shower, and all of them just started laughing hysterically. And it was like this huge inside joke, and the internet kind of went crazy about it for six, seven, eight hours trying to find out what it was. And we never knew. It was like the Bigfoot of NBA references dropped in a post-game studio show. So I got to the bottom of it, along with a bunch of other things with Charles Barkley. Here is that right now. All right, it's time for speed round with NBA Hall of Famer Charles Barkley. Now, right do here. I do I have to answer or just say a word? You have to answer, and it's got to be fast answers. Okay. Which current NBA player reminds you most of you? Not that fast, huh? This is not speedy. <laughs> um, Draymond Green. Oh, the nut puncher. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cheapest player on the 92 Dream Team? Uh, Scotty Pippen. Scotty Pippen? Yep, no tipping Pippen. That's his nickname. Uh, why haven't you ever gone to Magic's house to get your 1990 MVP trophy? Yeah, I, I've been salty about that since the year I should Why don't you won. just go and get it? Just take it. Just well, go Mag over there. He I, lives listen, in Beverly Hills. First of all, Magic's a it. billionaire, and he's probably got security. So that's the only reason I have one. Maybe if you're at a at his at like a Christmas party, you just kind of sneak. Over. Listen, if he just—it's yours. He's had it for 26 years. Listen, if he just gave me like Starbucks for life, we'd be golden. <laughs> uh, what cost you more money over the years, Vegas or your daughter? Vegas. How but, close is it? But there? my daughter is fine, but Vegas is more fun. Okay. Do you think NBA stars used PEDs when you played? No. Do you think they use them now? No, because I don't think they'll help you, to be honest with you. You don't think having more endurance and more strength would help you and the think, ability to recover faster? I, don't, I think we're the best in the world at physical conditioning. Okay. And I, I don't see it giving you, because there's no player who came out of nowhere and just, like, got better. Like, the same guys you see in high school and college they're the ones who do well in the pros. Do you also believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy or no? Oh, yeah. Uh, listen, I believe that Santa Claus is black. Uh, <laughs> and I believe the Tooth Fairy is... <laughs> You're the funniest NBA player ever. Who is second? Who's the silver medalist? I think Dennis Rodman is funny. Was Manute funny? Manute was hilarious. Okay. One of the best teammates ever. Oh, I was going to ask you that. Who was your favorite teammate ever? Well, there's probably... Uh, Three or four, I can't go one. Rick okay. Mahorn, Mike Jeminski, Derek Smith, and probably Dan Marley. Rick Mahorn had your back if you got in a, in a scuffle with somebody. Yeah, but he was hoping I wouldn't get in a fight because he couldn't fight. 
It, it, seems, oh, it seems okay, like remember that. Okay, think about this. You fought Rick Bohorn. Go back and look at the Bad Boys Pistons. First yeah. of all, the two toughest guys on the team were Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars. Yeah. But the other two guys who act like they were tough were Bill Lambert and Rick Mahorn. Have you ever seen them actually win a fight? You've always seen them getting punched. You, but you've never seen him actually win a fight, have you? You clocked Bill Lambert. I did, and he deserved it. He came at you, though. I was no, impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me tell you something. Have you ever seen Mahorn and Lambert win a fight? They've no. always been getting the punch E. They were never the punch-er. Lambert even lost a fight to Isaiah Thomas. He was like 10 well, inches Isaiah, shorter. But Isaiah Thomas Isaiah's tough now. I, Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars, you didn't mess with them boys. Yeah. Uh, what happens if the 93 Suns play the 06 Warriors? Oh, we beat them like a drum. Beat him in five? Yeah. Uh, no, we won't beat him in five, but we'll beat him. Do you hard foul Steph within the first two games? Oh, yeah. You got to set the tone. Yeah. How yeah. many times does he run by you when he's running around You screens? hit him every single time. Just, hey, you listen. push your butt right into Anybody him. who does not think that all the physical pounding going back to Oklahoma City yeah. and against the Cavs didn't have an effect upon Steph, they don't know anything about basketball. I think Clippers always defended him that way. Yeah. That was you have what to. they did. Uh, it's been 23 years. Have you stopped blaming Kevin Johnson for no-showing the first two finals games in 93 yet? I have forgiven Kevin. Well, we not, we, first of all, we only didn't show, and I was part of that too. I take responsibility for that. Okay. Because I didn't get my team ready to play. Yeah. Because the finals are different. You're home. The finals are different. The lights were too bright for us, and I blame myself for that. I could have been a better. I should have been a better leader for on that situation. That's a very diplomatic answer. No, you should be as nice to hey, Kenny man, every, Smith and Ernie. Everybody, uh, well, I'm always nice to Ernie. <laughs> I'm never going to be nice to Shaq and Kenny. Fair. Uh, do you think you reach 75% of your potential as an NBA superstar? I probably reach more. 80? No, I probably got 100. There's yeah. a couple of years where you were a little out of shape. Only the last year. So near the end. Yeah. What about a couple of the Philly years? I was in great shape in Philly every really? year. Really? Yeah, every year. Well, wait, in Phoenix, you like, you lost, like, what? How many pounds? I didn't lose any weight in Phoenix. Really? Well, the only year that I was fat was my last year in Houston because they had promised me $12 million. And when I showed up, the contract was only for $8 million. <laughs> And I said, what happened to my other $4 million? They're like, well, we just decided to keep it. And I says... And then you started eating? I did. I was. I did. I was so pissed. They did. They was like they did. Cause I had what had happened was I took a pay cut so we could sign Scottie Pippen. Yeah. I didn't know he was gonna come without Michael Jordan. That was a full paw on my part. Yeah, yeah. You thought he was coming. So they says we need you to take a pay cut so we can sign Scottie. So I said okay. I would love to play with Scottie. So they said we'll give you 12 million next year. So when I showed up the next year. They bring me a contract, and I said, this looks like an eight. They're like, yeah, we're going to give you eight million. I said, what about the other four million? They're like, well, we just changed our mind. So I wasn't motivated. Did you not have an agent, or? Well, no, I, had, I took my agent out. My agent didn't trust him. Yeah. I should have fired him then. Yeah, that sounds uh, like a fireable offense. No, 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 no. He said, do I trust him? Because, you know, back then, because what had happened was, you go back and look at that time frame, the Minnesota Timberwolves did an under-the-deal ta uh, table with Kevin Garnett sure. and got busted and lost all their draft picks. Oh, that was picks. Joe Smith. Uh, it was Joe Smith. It was Joe Smith, excuse yeah, me. Yeah. So now teams were doing those under-the-table deals. They didn't want to put anything on paper. So I trusted the Rockets, uh, which was, was a mistake. mistake. Um, we got sidetracked. Okay. Uh, most underrated NBA star from your era? Great question. Just say Kevin McHale. Oh, Kevin McHale's the best player I ever played against, okay. period. So he, so he counts. Yes. How many years... Do you ever answer any question with anybody other than Boston? No, I, I mix it up sometimes. Okay. How many years would you have lasted playing with Kobe Bryant before you asked for a trade? I, I think I could have played with Kobe. He's, because I, I, was, I could do other things. Like eight years? No, no. I, I, first of all, Six? we, we would have been really good together. CPL, I was content. Like, I was going to get at least 20 points, but I was, I was content on getting 12, 14, 16 rebounds a game. So me and Kobe would have been fine together. That's one of your favorite, my favorite things that you say when you get mad that centers can't get 12 rebounds in a game. No, it it's bothers me. It's three a quarter. Me. You're no, right. It, it drives me crazy, it, too. When I look at, once I got into the starting line, it was after my rookie year. I never averaged less than 10 rebounds a game. Like, it drives me crazy. Like, who can't get 10 rebounds a night? I know. I feel like I can get 10 rebounds. Like, a, first of all, you're standing in the paint. 
Yeah. The ball's going to bounce to you seven to eight times. I played with a guy who said, he said, I'm going to get two off mess free throws, Mike Jemeski. He, yeah. Mike Jemeski is one of my best friends. <laughs> We'd be standing on the free throw line. Somebody would miss a free throw. He'd come all the way across the free throw line and almost <laughs> knock me into the stands. He says, that's a rebound. <laughs> did you ever play golf with O.J. Simpson? I did not. Golden State owner Joe Lacob claims to be one of the world's 10 best blackjack players. There's no, no great blackjack players. It's only great cards. Hey, first of all, that's, I always tell people, people say I'm a good gambler. There's no such thing as a good gambler. When you're getting shitty cards, you're a shitty gambler. <laughs> like, I love to gamble, but when I'm sitting there getting my brains beat in, when I'm getting 12s and 13s, and the dealer's flopping over 20s and 21s, like, gambling is just a really a thing about peaks and valleys. But don't tell me, the, the biggest adjustment I made in my life, Bill, I quit trying to break the casino. Yeah, good move. Yeah, you know, no, they, no. That's well, why they keep building them. No, Bill, people try let to me break just them. say this. I went to Vegas and I've won a million dollars probably six times. Yeah. I probably lost a million 20 times. So, no, that's the truth. So what I happened was, every time I went to Vegas, I was trying to win a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. So I quit gambling for two years, and my friend said to me, well, gambling's not your problem. Your, your, your problem is you're a fucking idiot. And I said, explain Fair to enough. me why. Because my I, friends have to be honest with me. Yeah. One of the biggest problems with celebrities, they never put people around them as a checks and balance. My friends, they better tell me when I'm doing something stupid. So my friend says to me, Charles, you'll be up 300, 400, dollars $700,000. You won't quit. You're trying to get to that imaginary number that you won a few times. And now, so now when I go gamble, if I win a couple hundred thousand or I lose a couple hundred thousand, I'm like, okay, guys, we had a fun weekend. Let's go home. You could change one NBA rule. What would you change? Uh, I can't have kids stay in college for two years. You played with the first Cliff Robinson. There yes. were two Cliff Robinsons. Yes. You guys made a joke once about a Cliff Robinson shower, and everybody laughed for like five it, it, minutes. We what, call, what's a Cliff Robinson shower? Uh, it was like a drive-thru. So like, what happened? Uh, like, he would walk through the shower, <laughs> get wet, and keep moving. No soap, no nothing. We call him drive-thru. You know how you know when your car just go through the yeah. drive-thru? That's where he went through the shower. He would just go in, he'd walk through the water, and then he'd be right back. But, you just go in there? <laughs> but how did Kenny and Shaq know what that was? Oh, because that's So all, everybody in the league knew what a Cliff that, Robinson shower that's was? That's all we do is sit around and talk about the old days. Yeah, when you're old and fat, okay. that's all you got is the good old days. 30 years ago, Dr. J, Magic, and Dominique are all at the club, and they all like the same girl who gets the girl. Dr. J. Okay, that's what I figured. Yeah. Dr. J is like a minus 300 favorite? Uh, Dr. J is, there's certain people when they're, they're like, oh, that's Dr. J. Yeah. You said that with reverence. He deserves that. Okay. Favorite piece of memorabilia you've kept from your career? I don't keep any memorabilia. Okay. No photos, nothing? No. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, I got a, a, a dream team flag from the first dream team. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah. I got everybody to sign it. That's probably my most favorite. That's uh, a good one. Yeah. Everybody signed it. It was pretty cool. All right, three more. Sure. Best looking woman you've ever seen in person? Probably Jennifer Lopez. She's beautiful. Should any NBA player ever date a Kardashian? <laughs> no. And that has nothing to do with the Kardashians. I don't know them. But, but I, you just said no. It has a little something to do with I them. I don't think any person ever should discuss their personal life, especially not putting it on television. Like, I, I tell people, you can ask me anything in the world you want to. I think any celebrity to answer any personal question is an idiot. And to go on TV makes you a bigger idiot. Last question. What happens first, Tiger wins a major or my show gets canceled? <laughs> well, listen. I, I'm on the first show, so I don't care what happens after this. <laughs> Charles Barkley, thank you for nope. being the first speed round. Thank you. All right, this next one is also from the first episode. 
Ben Affleck was on. Controversial appearance because he went full mass hole about the flake gate, and I loved it. And uh, and so did New England. Uh, we did tape this at 10.30 in the morning, I should add. People were wondering why he was so upset because we taped for a half hour. And um, we edited a couple different pieces together, including that Deflategate thing for the show. But we also had a whole bunch of other stuff, including um, this eight-minute clip about him talking about what it was like to be famous at in his mid-20s and also the whole experience of putting Goodwill Hunting together, which I thought we easily could have just used this for the show. So instead, we're putting it here. I don't think people realize you became super famous when you were 25. It's pretty yeah. young. I was that 25, I think I was unemployed or barely employed. What would you, if you could go back 20 years ago, what, would you, sense, what would you tell yourself? Saying about having more money than sense or more something than yeah. galleons than uh, brains. I don't think, you know, I, I have to say, I listened, somebody emailed me and said, I really liked your commentary on Armageddon. The, oh yeah, the that was DVD. a big internet thing last week. Like, yeah. I just went back and listened to it. It actually was pretty funny. Um, and it was me before I realized that like, you don't do the DVD commentary and shoot right. on your own movie when you're doing it, you know what I mean? And like make fun of the whole thing. So it's yeah. kind of uh, endearing in a way. I, I, it was very funny. It made me think I should shit on all my movies in the DVD well, commentary. Well, you did a good one hunting commentary that's actually really good. I mean, that's one of my favorite movies. So I probably wasn't shitting on it. No, you weren't shitting on it, but it was funny. It was like you actually, it was like mystery science theater a little bit. I think you should just do every movie. <laughs> I just bang I them all out. Reindeer <laughs> games, just go all the way through friends, them. Yeah. I mean, I, um, so what, so I, I just know that I, it was very fast and very hard to, and I, I was, mistake that I made was that I thought that like being real and hanging on to who I really was meant also hanging on to a certain kind of knucklehead aspect of like, I grew up in Boston, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do who I, you know, be who I really am and say what I really feel. It's a, a little bit about like, I'm not gonna grow up or mature in some ways because that would mean uh, but that's selling out that's Boston something. though. It Boston is. Boston is very like I don't care what happens to me. I'm gonna be the same guy. I'm gonna have that, and you try to yeah. stick with that. Yeah, and then that was a little bit of what I of the attitude that I have. I think it came across as um, just like this kid's a moron. You know what I mean? Just immature and a little bit like a knucklehead or something like that. You know, not a moron, but like just a, a kind of attitude of um, you know. I'm not gonna change, you know what I mean? There's this whole thing of like, if don't, you never change. You know what I mean? Like, as if change is the real enemy. Right. Like you go to Hollywood and you, you get successful and then, but the thing is you can never change. Change is actually a good thing. You know yeah. what I mean? Change and growth and like that stuff is healthy. You're supposed to change and get better and evolve and get smarter. And I sort of actively resisted that instead just, you know, had like, bunch of my friends from home living in my house with me and we all just got drunk every night and I was like I'm never changing you know <laughs> there's a great goodwill hunting oral history and one of the parts in there is about how after you became famous SNL did a sketch about you guys and Damon was like the smart guy in this in the sketch and you were knucklehead and Damon was saying how it hurt both of your feelings because you realize like people's history with you guys was just as these two characters and they weren't actually, you weren't people to them. And it was kind of illuminating. Yeah, there was definitely- That wasn't a question, by the way. I did a bad job there. That's a, that's a Bob Costas. That was interview. a Bob Costas Bob question. Costas just goes on and on and on. It was a pontification. Yeah. With bombast. <laughs> yeah. And then you just were supposed to go, that's right, Bob. Yeah. How observant. But, and then the next question, he says something else. So Ben, was that an illuminating experience for you? <laughs> uh, it was an illuminating experience, Bob. I. Um, <laughs> You know, it was, it, it, uh, it, it was illuminating because I realized that people conflated our uh, characters with us because that's just what they knew us. We got really famous for these two characters and people didn't know us from anything else. And I just kind of assumed, well, people will naturally feel like, you know, get, judge us or give us credit in equal measure considering we both wrote this story and came yeah. up with this idea. But it's a really a powerful thing. I mean, you kind of still to this day, you think Sylvester Stallone kind of is Rocky. Right. You know what I mean? You, I think he thinks you that. You know, uh, maybe. <laughs> but, it, but it's, um, you know, you, we, we, we identify people with characters really strongly, especially when they are the first big impression that somebody makes. And I think that the impression that got made right off the bat with me and Matt was not like <clears throat> two guys who, who write a movie and come up with these interesting characters, but rather like 
this ge tough genius and his friend and right. his like lunkhead friend come out of you know Boston and tell their own story to the world. You know what I mean in a way that it was a sort of semi-autobiographical story. You guys had like every great and bad experience that happens to people who become famous overnight. Because like right before you won the Oscar, people are leaking that you didn't write the script. And meanwhile, you'd spent what like five years on it. You'd done 17 incarnations, and yeah. like there's a great story about when you did the construction scene with him that you'd been waiting to do that scene for, what, four years? Yeah, at least. I and mean, then you did it in one take, and you were like, uh, yeah, okay, we, now what? We did it once, and then I was kind of like, that's it? And he was like, I don't know. And Gus was like, yeah, but we could go one more time. And I was like, yeah, let's go again. I, I you know, I had been practicing this moment, you know, in bed and working out, you know, for years. And You're years in the bathroom coming out of the shower over, doing it? Just like that, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was a, it, that that script we spent rewriting probably more time in aggregate than I spent writing all other scripts that I've worked on combined, just because, you know, we didn't have anything else to do, and so we kept just sort of rewriting it, and rewriting it, and trying to get people interested in it. And then when it got sold, we ended up, you know, working on it for a couple of years while it was in the studio system and and taking these very circuitous routes to to where it ended up. It did get better, by the way, as we yeah. continued to rewrite it, but. Um, it was a long process from being, I don't know, when we started the script, you know, it's 18 and 20 to whatever it was, 24 and 26 or something when the movie came out. And it's true you guys cried when the first scene happened? Stellan yeah, Skarsgård and Robin Williams, and they're reading your lines and you guys both teared up? We did tear up a little bit. That's know. awesome, though. We were I mean, to spend five years on a script. Yeah, it was just one of those involuntary things where our whole identities were wrapped up in the idea that we were the guys trying to get this movie made. And anytime we went out to a bar, anytime we went to a restaurant or met somebody, that was our story, that's who we were. The kids, we had this script, that was it. Yeah. We didn't have anything else to talk about. We weren't doing anything else. Aside from that, we were the most boring people in the world. I mean, that was all we had. Yeah. And that's all we talked about. And that's all anybody who hadn't seen us in a while, how's that going? You guys had that script, right? You're trying to get that movie made. And yeah, and then we get blah, 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 blah. We'd talk about you know, our latest adventure and being stymied by movie studios. and. Um, so when it finally happened, it was a kind of like we didn't know who we were anymore. Yeah. If we weren't the guys trying to get this screenplay made, what, you know, we, we kind of lost our identity to get the people who made the movie. You know, it was almost too weird. I remember seeing my, my father's name is Tim, and, uh, and we named arbitrarily the bar that they, Stellan and, and Robin went to have a beer at, Timmy's Tap, um, just, just because we couldn't think of a name. And, uh, and then we were there the first day in the neon sign was like, um, you know, just there it was, this big neon sign that said Timmy's Tap. And we realized that somebody like from our just sort of typing it down, somebody had gone out and built and bought some whole $500 Timmy's Tap sign. It was a giant thing. And I was like, I got to have that. I got to keep that, you know. And I kept it and I put it in my apartment in New York, you know. And I was like, Dad, I got a, a sign, a big Timmy's Tap sign. And he was like, I don't want that. <laughs> Why do I want a big Timmy's tap sign? <laughs> I don't, I'm I like not it. a bar. I was like, okay, good point. All right, this third clip is with Mark Cuban and Malcolm Gladwell. It's from the second show we did. I actually had these guys on to talk about PEDs, which is why when we did the, uh, if you watch the second episode, the opening was about PEDs, and then it was going to lead into a PED discussion with, with uh, Gladwell and Cuban. So we taped the first segment, and then we did a second segment about NBA owners, and we just liked the one about NBA owners more. I really like this PDs one too, and if uh, we we really could have just had the whole second show with these two guys because they were great together. So here is Cuban and Gladwell talking about PDs with myself, and this is really fun. Let's go. That's Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and that's Malcolm Gladwell, best-selling author turned podcaster. Revisionist history. Revisionist history. There's not been revisionist history yet about HGH. You've been a vocal critic. You feel like there's a public stigma with HGH and athletes. Um, what are we missing with HGH? We're missing that there's no data that proves one way or the other that it enhances or does or doesn't enhance performance. None. Zero. And it's never been tested. Malcolm, do you care if somebody uses HGH to recover from an injury? I don't. I mean, you and I have had this conversation before about it's an important distinction between things that you take to recover from an injury and things that you take to augment your performance. The problem is that 
it's really hard in the real world to make that distinction. I mean, it's a great distinction in theory, but I, I wonder whether there are a lot of jobs, drugs that might do both or a little bit of both simultaneously. So that makes it, puts it in a gray zone that's hard to figure out. The, all right, so you're pro-HGH for, if the NBA legalized well, HGH, you'd be good No, because there's no evidence one way or the other. So what I did was fund a study at the University of Michigan where they're taking 236 athletes that have had ACL um, problems. Right. And, and for the ACL surgery, they're going to give a um, half HGH before and after to see if it helps with the recovery and half a placebo. And we'll see. So rather than guessing, I don't, I, you know, I don't care one way or the other. I just want to know the facts. Malcolm, you, you no, were kind of a little bit for HGH, but now you've turned. Well, I, you know, it's the the problem is that I'm principally a track fan. Right. And when it comes to track and field and EPO and things, I become a total hardliner. There is no place for anything like that, um, in a sport. Hardliner. For, it's like the 1920s. For football, exactly. Yeah. For because football is in a special case where the injury load associated with the game is now so out of control. I mean, this is essentially a game that cripples everyone who plays it. When you have that kind of uh, problem with the game, you have to pursue, you have to look at different ideas about how to deal with that, right? I mean, it's, it's negligent on the part of the, of the NFL to play the game as it is now and not spend real dollars on trying to figure out how to prevent or speed up so recovery. So I'm guessing you wouldn't let any of your kids play football. Oh, my God. I, would, I, I wouldn't <laughs> let a friend play football. I mean, it, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let my son play football. No chance. And, you know, basketball, everyone's like, no, no, they don't use it in basketball. No, no, it wouldn't really help. It's like I really find it hard to believe that recovery drugs – Drugs that help you build your strength back after you've been. Why, oh, why do we think that we don't have this in the NBA? I mean, I don't. I don't think any of our guys has ever taken it. They're, guys in the locker room talk all the time, and they guess who they think has. Yeah. Um, but you're gonna name any names? No, because I'd just be guessing. <laughs> um, but isn't it obvious just by looking at some players that something's going on? You would think so, but it's hard to say, right? Because there's never been a study. It's not like you can say, look, we took these 200 athletes and here's the 100 that got placebos, here's who got the real who got HGH. Now look at their body shapes, look at their physicality and see what's happened and then here's what happens after they came off. There's no really reference points for us or benchmarks. Do we know at this point uh, precisely what uh, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were taking during that historic Home run, right? I call those the old school steroids. They're like, well, no, remember no. when we were growing up in the '70s and like the, oh. you know, the communist countries that have these athletes that were like, no, I grew up. Yeah. Have those I grew up in Pittsburgh, and yeah. I used to see a lot of the players like Steve Corson who since oh, died, yeah. and he'd be like, humongous, and I mean, he'd get into roid rages, and you'd talk to, you know, I'd hang out with some of those guys, and the stories were scary. Right, but they were basically like steroids you give to a horse. I think now the steroids are actually probably better and sleeker. Much more, I guess. Well, I, well that, they're safe. Look a lot it. of that, but no, I think a, a lot of what has gone on is that people have switched from some of these cruder, older steroids to things like, and I say things like HGH. This is why I ask about Sosa and McGuire. So we know that it's very clear they got a substantial performance benefit yeah. from taking something. Right over the course of those years. And that performance benefit was not small. It was on the order of 10, 15 percent? Yeah, right? yeah oh, I would say like 30. <laughs> and it saved baseball. And it did it save happened, baseball. It happened to yeah. save baseball. Yeah. But it was among the things they were taking, or bonds later on. I would love to know if he had in his cocktail, any of those guys had in their cocktail, HGH. That's a good way to start this question, right? No. <laughs> no, because you just have to do a study. You start, know, you, you answer to. a question with data, right? You look at steroids. The stigma of steroids, when you ask people, what's the problem with steroids aside from performance enhancement? Well, we don't want it in the game because it'll encourage kids to do it. Is that a valid reason to keep it out? Because the reality is, safely administered by doctors, steroids are safe. You don't see people who have taken steroids under the care of a doctor Falling, out, falling over dead or having problems. You see people, athletes who took them themselves, self-administered, bought them on the black market. Those are the ones that have problems. So the question is, what does it do? What does the data say it will, will do? And what is the enhancement from that steroid or whatever it is? And then you make a decision. But you can't make a decision without data. You can only guess. Well, it seems like the data and the testing is now worse than ever. And you saw what happened in the uh, Olympics where the Rio drug testing lab basically has become invalid mm -hmm. 
and now we're looking at these Olympics, I don't know what I'm watching anymore. Like you, the Summer Olympics are coming up. It's like, what am I would watching? Would you rather watch an going? Olympics where they just say, you know what, HGH, steroids, they're yeah. all legit. Well, first of all, I would. Are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say baseball to save track and field. You too. all, yeah. you already, well, first of all, you already watched that. Right. Yeah, right, I watched right. it every four years. Yeah. You watch, so in 2012, this is the thing that, because I'm a track fan, in 2012, six of the top nine finishers in the uh, women's 1500 meters at, in London have subsequent to that uh, race been, um, been either uh, kicked out of the sport or um, evidence has been found that they were using drugs. So when you watch that, I mean, I watched that race, thrilling race. Six of the nine that we know about were on the juice. That wasn't a real well, race. What if nine of nine were? First of all, I don't think I'm not. No, Shannon Robray was not on the juice. No, 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 not, no, right. I'm not, no, meaning if it was legit. Right. If yeah. they all could take with the doctor's care. That's, that's not fair because what if I don't want to, what if I'm competing and I don't want to take this stuff? So then you shouldn't get LASIK surgery to, to improve your vision past 2020 so you can see a baseball better? Well, LASIK surgery is a good, that's a good one. Tommy John because surgery? That's actually voluntary. People. People what about voluntary Tommy John surgery? Yeah. Literally voluntary. I, I mean, sure. that, those yeah. are, there's a, there's a massive gray area in those sports. I will say this about Olympic sports though. When you have a sport that is almost wholly defined by the time, right? By a timed performance. Mm -hmm. The introduction of these kinds of uh, drugs, which can cause, particularly in women, I mean, people have forgotten that uh, steroids and any kind of drug, EPO, any of these PEDs have a much greater effect on female performance than male performance. Yeah. So with men, it's like that. With women, it's like that. So this is, we're talking almost entirely about male use here. F female use is a whole different ballgame, right? You're turning essentially uh, people who are, you know, ordinary people into super, superhuman athletes with the, with, the, with the use of these drugs. That's where, that gets really weird. When you My wife that. had a sinus infection. They gave her steroids. She was just nasty around the house for <laughs> three days. Well, really, let me ask you this. So I read a New York stories. Times article where um, this, this professor from SMU went to the Dead Sea and he's training people because it's literally below sea level, right? Yeah. So the oxygen levels are much higher. So if you train people there, is that the same as doping? Because you're increasing your oxygen levels and you, you increase your performance. Well, you, I mean, runners always train at altitude, right? Because you, by training where there's less uh, oxygen. And you can you, simulate that now. You simulate the, and you can do it in an oxygen tent. Right. But there is a, there is a, I think it's safe to say, we'd all agree, I think, that there is a real distinction between traveling to a 6,000 feet and running and injecting yourself with drugs. Or giving yourself different well, no, red one is, blood cells. Well, no, one is just, that one? one's a natural version, right? One is, uh, narc, uh, you know, uh, synthesized version of the same thing but, though. But can't we say that for the purposes of particularly of, so, of, of sports, which is already, think about sports, we're not talking about um, human beings living their normal lives. Already when you enter in professional sports, you agree to a set of largely arbitrary rules about right. how that sport's supposed to proceed. Mark's never really agreed to <laughs> I don't know why I'm I played by a lot this. of them, but, but. <laughs> but. But I mean, so given that, it's not unreasonable to, for, for people to accept Distinctions well, like that. Let me play the counter to that. Yeah. The rich get to go to 6,000 high altitude places. The rich get to go to the Dead Sea. Yeah, nonsense. The, the, the poor don't get to, to take advantage of those because they can't afford it. Here's a synthetic bullshit. version. No, wait a second. Bullshit. The, in, who dominates running uh, at the international stage? Kenyans and Ethiopians. Now, why do you think that is? Because they live at 6,000 no, feet. I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. For a, for a number of reasons, but I that's would say the principal it's just, reason. Uh, um, what's the book by David Epstein? Um, it, I've, the gene, I, sports gene. The sports gene. I know David yeah, very yeah. well. Yeah. But David would say that that is a huge... I thought the Kenyans were in like this little pocket where the altitude was just high enough to yes, train really well, but not too high. Well, no, but, you, but yeah. what, what does evolution do, right? They're Kenyans. They've been there since the dawn of time, right? Yeah. So your body evolves. That's what evolution does, and the strongest survive. And to be stronger, to survive in that altitude and run and do what you do up That's there. why people in Massachusetts put on a little extra weight. We <laughs> no, we know what makes a great... Runner, you got to be a skinny person who grows goes up at roughly six thousand feet. Who is the greatest American distance runner of the last ten years? Ryan Hall, a skinny guy who grew up at six thousand feet, only in California, not Ethiopia. But that's a very different story than sitting in your house and and shooting yourself up with drugs. Also, from the second episode, we had Bill Hader on. We did a, a speed round with him that wasn't so speedy because 
they never are. Throw questions, and sometimes you get derailed. You, you go on a bunch of different tangents. Uh, we were not able to keep the entire speed round with Hater in there, but we were able to cobble together six minutes of extra stuff, and here it is. I haven't even talked to you since you hosted SNL. Yeah. What was the weirdest thing about doing that? Uh, going into the picks, going in and seeing how the show is picked. I had never been a part of that. And what does that so, mean? I don't know what that oh, means. Oh, so you do, like, well, when you do the table read. Oh. And then you would sit there and you would hang out for an hour and then they would post, oh, here's the sketches we're going to do. But to be a part of that meeting where they would, all the sketches were up and you would see, you and know. And you had some authority, right? Like, yeah, they you would could go say, like, oh, I like that one, I like this one. But I saw, what I didn't realize was when you was a new cast member, I always thought, oh, no one's... I got you know, I didn't think anybody was fighting for me, but I was so surprised how, and I was surprised how much Lauren is like, hey, so-and-so's light, you know? Yeah. This cast member who's struggling, they need a piece, so we should maybe do this, because, you know, they had a bad week last week. Right. Blah, blah, blah. And then before air, I mean, your adrenaline's going nuts, and then you go in, so you do dress rehearsal, and they go, all right, Lauren's ready to, for the meeting, and you go up and... And you're just like, all right, let's go. And, and Lauren is so chill. He's eating popcorn. He's like, did you like this? You want to do this? No? Okay. You know, like it's yeah. so chill. And, and, and you know, um, he just knows that show better than anything. Like he just knows exactly what will play. And that, that was cool. True or false, you had a panic attack during a 2010 SNL episode impersonating Julian Assange. I did. I did. Yeah, Jeff Bridges, Christmas episode. I was totally exhausted. I was so uh, just depleted. And I, and it happened like I showed up on Saturday. I, the way I remembered it, and Seth was like, hey, Julian Assange just did another you know, WikiLink thing. Um, you're doing it tonight. And I was like, what? And I hadn't really had a chance to really look at it. And I'm like... I'm not someone, I always admired Fred, Fred and Kristen and Keenan because they could just, you put something in front of them and they could just cold read it and everything. Right. I had to like go over it and over it and over it. And I didn't feel like I was prepared. So on air, I'm sitting there and all of a sudden it felt like someone was sitting on my chest. Like I started sweating. I thought I was going to start crying. This I was, was on like, the air? On the air. And so if you watch, I have a glass of wine and I just have a glass of wine. I just have it from my mouth the whole time. And I remember our stage manager going, like as I'm doing it going, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, I don't want anybody, you know. Oh my God. Sweating. And then it was nice because I told everybody after and I was so embarrassed and I was like, I just had a panic attack on air. And so many of the cast members were like, oh, I had one of those on the air once. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember when uh, you were this? About, yeah, I was flipping out, man, you know, or whatever. So it made me feel a little bit better. Uh, you've done voices in Finding Dory, Inside Out. You did two Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs movies. Have your daughters watched these movies yet? You have three daughters. Yeah, three daughters. They so how does that go? It goes, they're a little embarrassed by it when they watch it. They're, they're kind of like, really light and they go, oh, why is dad, you know? I think about that and if like, I was watching Star Wars and suddenly my dad showed up in the Millennium Falcon, I'd be like, hey, Chewie, guys, what's going on? I'd be like, this is terrible, you know what I mean? So they're watching it with their friends and, and I'm always like, can you tell who that is? And they're like, yeah, it's you, it sucks, thanks, you know? <laughs> This is so embarrassing. No, but they did like. It's um, only gonna get worse. I know. Oh my yeah. God. But now they, they brag about it a little. Bit. Like they don't like it. And then they'll, we're at a birthday party just yesterday, and they'll be talking to their friends, and their friends will come over, like, "Are you Leonard from, you know, Angry Birds?" And I was like, "Why, well, yes, I am." And then Hannah's like, "Don't do that." You know. I didn't even mention Angry Birds. Yeah. How many kids' movies have you been in? I've been in so many, bro. Mowney, right? Mowney. No. Just hearing the voices. <laughs> Uh, true or false, you once wrote a slasher film. I did. I wrote a slasher film. Judd Apatow called me up and said, I would love to do what they did with Shaun of the Dead, but instead of zombie movies, make it a slasher movie. So I wrote it with a series of writers, all my friends. We tried out different versions of that idea. And it never worked because we realized zombie movie, zombies are like... They're fantastical. They're, it's kind of lends itself to comedy because right. they can't. It's not real. But a guy with a knife—that's the ten o'clock news. That's the Serico not as funny. Yeah, it wasn't as funny. You couldn't be funny in that grounded way. You had to go really insane. You know what I mean? But the way that we wanted to do it, where it is what Judd does really well, where it's kind of in a real world. It's not Zucker Brothers or something like that. And we tried a lot of different things and just kind of like, you know, like just. Both of us were like, ah, oh, this isn't really working. I think Friday the 13th Part 4 is very funny. 
You should watch that for inspiration. That Corey Feldman's they, in that one. Is that he shaves his head bring, at the end. That's not the one where he picks up the person in the sleeping bag and smashes them against the, <laughs> like a baseball bat. <laughs> oh, that was great. Jason Voorhees is secretly funny. Yeah. Our funniest movie, Serial Killer. <laughs> Michael Myers, not a sense of humor. No, as not much. a Put the ghost humor. thing on once. Yeah. That's about it. What made you want to play a hitman on your own HBO show? I got together with Alec Berg, who's the genius, you know, writer on a, you know, he did uh, Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, and um, now he did Silicon Valley. And we just thought of, uh, I don't know, we just saw this weird idea, well, yeah, where I play a hitman who, it's kind of lonely, and I come to LA, and I follow the guy I'm gonna kill to his acting class, and I realize like, oh, I kind of like this. Yeah. You know, and it's all these like very eager LA actors, and and I figure like, oh, maybe this is like where I can start over. You know. So when is your show premiere? Uh, I don't know yet, but it'll be sometime. It'll sometime late next this year. This is a great place. Yeah. Yeah, you'll like it. I like it here. All right. I love being here. Thanks for having me. Also from the third episode, we had Joe Rogan on, who's been the voice of the UFC since really 2002. And we did a little warm-up segment with him just to, just to uh, we didn't know what it was going to be. It was about all the twists and turns that his career has taken. He started talking about fear factor and conspiracy theories. It was good. It easily could have been on the show. And here it is right now. I'm here with Joe Rogan. We have a lot in common even though we don't have a lot in common. But you started in Boston, late 80s, you're doing your stand-up. How old are you, like 21? Yes. You went from there, you, you came to Hollywood, you're in news radio, you're still pretty young. Did Fair Factor, you did The Man Show. Your path was very unconventional. What were, what were you trying to do like by your late 20s? What were you thinking, this is what I'm gonna do? Well, I was always just doing stand-up and everything else I was just doing for money. Like right. something would come along and they would say, do you want to act? And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And it was, but it was always like, well, if that sucks, I'll just go back to doing stand-up. Yeah. And it was never, um, it was, there, were, there was no choices as far as like... Um, You're just grabbing gigs. Yeah, there was no plan. Yeah, yeah. especially like Fear Factor. Yeah. There was, was no plan. It was like, how much? Okay. All right, we'll do it. But somehow you've been involved in a lot of stuff that has like rabid fans. Yeah. Like Fear Factor was massive. Well, it was ridiculous. For like three, four years. It yeah. was like kind of the signature show out of all like the game showy kind of things. Yeah, well, Survivor was, was, was first. Right. That was the big Survivor's one. That like, sort of yeah. launched the genre. And then, uh, yeah, it was Fear Factor. And then there was a bunch of other ones. But Fear Factor was just so ridiculous. We were sicking dogs on people. They're eating animal dicks and we're <laughs> drowning them and, you know, whatever bodily fluids that we had available. I mean, it was disgusting. What was, was the grossest thing you ever saw of Fear Factor? I don't think there was any one particularly <laughs> gross thing. Well, we did it for six years, 148 episodes, and then we came back. We came back and did six more, and it got canceled because they made people drink cum. They made people On NBC? drink donkey cum. Yes, and uh, NBC approved it. What uh, color was it? It was just like regular color cum. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they had to play horseshoes. They drank donkey piss and uh, and donkey cum. And, and you told them it was donkey cum. I told them everything they were doing. Yeah. Well, I told the people that were producing the show, don't do it. There's only two times I told them don't do it. I, yeah. I said we can't do this episode. One, they were making them ride bulls, and uh, they oh, had yeah. somebody get like paralyzed. Oh, they? for sure. Yeah. And they were like, well, these are stunt bulls. I'm like, did you ever? Does the bull know he's a stunt bull? Because I bet he thinks he's a fucking bull. Like, this, <laughs> right. this is ridiculous. Hey, you got lucky nobody either died or not yeah. just with the bulls, but even like drinking some of the disgusting stuff or eating some of this stuff. Well, it's come at the end of the day, it's just like protein. It's phlegm and protein, so it's really not that big of a deal. But, you, did, uh, uh, you did a conspiracy show on sci-fi. Yeah. I'm a big conspiracy guy, and my friends always make fun of me. One of the things... You, you, the moon landing has intrigued you for years. Well, conspiracies, yes, it has. But conspiracies have intrigued me. But I found out a lot doing that show, which the Joe Rogan Questions Everything show on sci-fi. There's, there's a classic style of human being that's into these things, and it's unfuckable white guys. Like, those are the type of guys that go looking for Bigfoot. Like, I had a joke in my act. What, there's the one thing you don't find when you go looking for Bigfoot. Black eyes. 
you will find Bigfoot before you find black guys <laughs> looking for Bigfoot. It is just a bunch of unfuckable white dudes out camping. Yeah. And th that's what it is. It's like some weird thing. They hit this point when they're like in their 40s or their 50s and like nobody wants to fuck me anymore. I got, I got to find ultimate truth. Right. I gotta, uh, there's, there's a UFO. It's a Hangar 18. Bermuda I got to get there. Yeah, there's, there's something about solving mysteries. With that said, the moon landing is a little mysteries. fishy. The moon landing, here's, here's the issue with the whole era of the 1960s and the 1970s. There was a lot of deception going on. Yes. This is where Operation Northwoods was created, where the government, the Joint Chiefs of Staff signed a document saying that they were going to blow up a drone jetliner, blame it on Cuba. They were going to arm Cuban friendlies and attack Guantanamo Bay. There was a lot of deception. This is Watergate. This is the, you know, the Nixon administration. And there was just a lot of fuckery. All the stuff the Republicans were doing, the Democrats, like the Muskie letter, mm -hmm. all that stuff. You're right. Yeah. It was... Even the Hollywood movies back then, they were, they were always geared around like the government trying to pull something over and people trying to... Realizing a candidate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there was a lot of deception. There was a lot of... It was standard. And so they, they definitely fucked with some photographs. Like there's uh, some photos of Michael Collins that they tried to pass off. I think it was Gemini 15, tried to pass it off as him being uh, in space when people found out that it was actually just these tests that they were doing, these preparation runs, and they just blacked out the background and tried to pass out those photos as space. So if you look at that, you got to go, well, if they were willing to do that, and the PR how team did go? that. How far did they go? If I had to bet my life on it, I would bet it happened. But I have a lot of questions. Yeah, I would, I would put myself in the same camp. I, I think there was definitely some fuckery involved in some of the footage that we viewed. And there's, there's been some people that have, you know, gone over it with a fine-tooth comb and found some irregularities. But, you know, you, you kind of got to use Occam's razor whenever you're looking at any of those things. Like, what is the most likely possibility? The most likely possibility is that we went. What uh, conspiracy theory do you actually believe in that's a conventional conspiracy theory, and you're like, I'm actually in on this one 100%. I don't think there's one. There's, like, dozens. You know, I don't think even dozens. No, I don't think there's a one that I buy, you know. Oh, so everyone, you have a shred of, of doubt. Well, that was the problem with that show. When you do that show, um, the, the Questions Everything show, and I met with the experts yeah. about like UFOs or Bigfoot or any of these things, you find out there's almost no evidence. There's nothing. Like in the, as you go deep into it, it's all just anecdotes. It's all just people's stories. It's all just people saying people that this stuff. happened to them. But people are fucking crazy. So if you get like 100 people, you're going to find one crazy person. So if you have 300 million people, you've got 3 million crazy people. So the fact that all these people have sightings, there has to be something to it. No, there doesn't. Because there's, you're dealing with massive numbers of human beings. And you're dealing with all sorts of weird mental issues, all sorts of uh, paranoid schizophrenics, all sorts of people that desperately want to be special. They desperately want to be the one who's in contact with the Palladians on Starship 17 out there. You know, there's just a lot of wackiness. So the, the sheer... NBA has a good one, by the way. I know you're not a big NBA fan, but the 1985 draft lottery, Patrick Ewing was the prize, and the Knicks got the number one pick. And there's video, people have slowed it down. They're picking the envelopes out of the thing, and people either think the envelope was frozen with the Knicks or that it had a little corner that was... So Stern's reaching in, and people have, like, stopped the video to see if, like, was he fumbling around, he felt the frozen one, and that was the one he pulled. Oh, so that's they made my one favorite. That was really I like, cold? That's actually a good move. Yeah, if they did it, like, cold. carbon whatever. Yeah. I like 10%, believe it. 10%? Yeah, 10%. It's fun. Last thing, podcasts... I started mine in May 2007. You started yours 2009, somewhere? Yeah, somewhere around there. Are you amazed by how, how big this genre has become? It's bananas. Like, uh, the numbers are insane. And, uh, you know, when we first started it out, it was just for fun. It was just yeah. a goof. It was a silly thing to do. To, With your buddies? Yeah, it was just, we, we thought it'd be fun to just hang out and talk shit, you know? You'll smoke pot on your pot. I, I don't, I'm afraid to do anything like that. Why afraid? Well, because I'm, I'm just not good at drugs. Oh. Bad. I'm bad at doing them. <laughs> well, then you should be confident. It. Yeah. I'm good at pot. So yeah, you're, I, good I like, at, you're much better you know. at drugs than I am. <laughs> also from the third show, we had Chris Bosch and Anthony Anderson on. And I had had Chris Bosch on a podcast probably three years ago at All-Star Weekend. And I think I only had him for 25 minutes. And he was so interesting that I wish it could have gone on for 90 minutes. Really thoughtful guy. I'm not sure 
if his destiny is an announcer or a media guy once he retires, I don't see him on a studio show. I think he's a little, I don't know, it's almost like he's better long form. I don't know where it goes for him, but he's definitely going to be able to do something really smart. And Anthony Anderson's great. They were, they were awesome together. Here's a seven-minute clip that we did not put in the show about them talking about LeBron James. Is LeBron the best for you? One of the best, yeah. I still have Jordan. So do I. I promised myself I would never say anyone past Jordan, so now I'm going to just be stubborn. As you should be. <laughs> I just feel like a stubborn old guy. Your, 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 your top five is your top five. It doesn't yeah. have to change for anybody. I put him over Bird, which was really hard for me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he's played 13 straight years where he's just been healthy every year. Like, Bird played nine. He broke down. Yeah. It's just hard to justify anymore. Think Cleveland can repeat? Yeah, for sure, of course. Yeah, okay. I think, you know... Um, JR is still out there. Of course, there's still moves mm-hmm. uh, to be made, but yeah, they'll be uh, right there. Did you think LeBron was going to win that series? Um, After Bogut got hurt, you're, you're, you started thinking maybe. I, I started out watching, and when they went down 3-1, you know, of course, I was like, ooh. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Yeah, that's, you don't want to be in that situation. But me automatically as a basketball player, you think of reasons why it could happen. Mm-hmm. Automatically. I think, why should Golden State be nervous? That's the first thing I think about, because it's hard to close someone out. And, you know, unfortunately, Draymond was suspended, so I started looking at that. And then Cleveland wins game five. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, okay. Right. Let's see what happens game six. They got to exercise some demons from last year. Yeah. They dominate game six. Mm-mm. Ooh. Now you got anything LeBron can happen game in game only. seven. Yeah. yeah, you got yeah. Anything can happen game seven, but you got to give a slight nod to the home team. I think it'll go down to the wire, and it was just such a strange game because Golden State played well, but Cleveland was still in it. And then yeah. Golden State just started missing. Yeah, it's the irony I mean, of ironies. <laughs> team that couldn't miss, all of a sudden they couldn't make a shot when it mattered. Yeah, but you're on the edge of your seats because it's like that can happen at any minute. Yeah. And it yeah. never came. And it, like, ne- and it never happened. Wait a minute. This is tie- it's still tied. And then Brian makes that incredible block, which right. at the time I thought, like, oh, man, oh, my God. I'm watching the game nervous. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, oh, my goodness, he's going to get a lip. And he comes out of nowhere. And did Kyrie you ever see him do anything yeah, like that? Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Hmm? Did, was that, did you ever see him do anything like that in Miami? A moment yeah. like that? Not a moment, no. Not a moment like that. Because I, I thought that was the defining play of I mean, career. some plays similar to that. Yeah. But... I mean, the distance that I didn't even see him. I was watching TV and didn't see him. He just came out of nowhere. And I was, wow. And then I guess there's an that incredible took clip out of it. Him. They had like the behind the basket camera, and you can just see him. And at one point, he's running to get yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Somebody kind of cuts off his path, and he's, he's almost like a running back. <laughs> like he navigates, and then he still somehow gets it. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it was I mean, incredible. I think he's in the, in the top three now. I think it's got to be he's him. up there. Him, Russell, and LeBron. <laughs> I mean, uh, and Jordan. Yeah, I think that's an awesome thing. And then just, you know, just being able um, to do that for Cleveland, for, for Cleveland, the city of Cleveland. Yeah. I didn't know how big it was till I saw the ESPN reporters, like, breaking down oh, yeah. and talking about their dads. And mm. this is, like, a moment for us in the mm. city. I'm like, golly, like, that's, you know, good for them. Is it going to be like that when the Clippers finally win the title? When, if and when we finally do win. <laughs> we, we got a little work ahead of us. Are the Clippers now the new most tortured franchise in the NBA? I think so. Because Cleveland had to pass the title somebody. So it's either Sacramento, Washington, Phoenix, Clippers. Clippers have had the most tragedies. They're up there. You know, they're, look, they're up there in the top three. You just named all three. So we'll see. We got to get you we'll, the Billy Crystal seat. We'll see if we can get over that hurdle. How do we get you the Billy Crystal seat? Uh, Billy Crystal has, has to relinquish his seat. Maybe we take him out. Okay. We, maybe, uh, can we, maybe like just push him to the right, maybe, like two seats. How about I just sit next to Billy Crystal? That's a good idea. Because I actually sit behind him now. How about if I just sit next to him? <laughs> we got to get you in the wood. All right, so prediction. Um, obviously, you're in the league, so this is a tough one. But you're not ready to hand the title over to Golden State. Uh, of course not. You know, okay. not even to Cleveland. I'm not ready either. <laughs> you have to go out there and earn it, man. You, got, yeah. you have to win, you know. All these things have to happen. You know, you have to be lucky. You have to be healthy. You have to be, you have to buy into to the whole thing. You have to be tight as a unit. Your players can't punch your equipment manager. Well, you There's a lot of variables. <laughs> and, and, and it all has to happen at a certain time. I mean, you can be healthy, you know, the beginning of the season, the middle of the season, but everything has to click. You have to click for yeah. sure. 
you know, and, and there's a certain timeline where, where that happens. And, and, and that's when that window of opportunity presents itself for, for the champion to become a champion. I'm always amazed by how much injuries play into this. If you just go back year by year by year, like every year an injury has pushed something mm -hmm. some way at some point. Like even sure. like your first title, Derrick Rose gets blows out his knee in yeah. the last minute of the first playoff game. Yeah. And who knows? Kevin, like that would have been a good uh, battle for you. Kevin guys. got hurt. Uh, KG Kevin got, got yeah. hurt. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. What was that? Uh, that was the 2009 Celtics was a yeah, tough 2009, one. Yeah, 2009, he got hurt. They're the uh, best team. But every year. <clears throat> yeah, I think what it was, 88, 89, I think Magic. And Byron Scott, they pulled up. In the 89 finals. They couldn't. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, of course, Detroit, you know, mm -hmm. swept them and everything. But just you see it, like, they can't go on anymore. And it just. I mean, you can even say in 2013, if Parker's hamstring is healthier, does that swing two possessions? I mean, even me. I mean, sense? we don't talk about these things as athletes. but And it was minor compared to other guys. But I had a turned ankle. It's one thing yeah. you realize. In I 2014. Yeah, yeah, I sprained it really bad against uh, the Pacers in that series. And, you know, you realize at one point, it's no reason in even talking about your ailments and what you did because it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody cares. There's a harsh reality to the game. And when you get that far, it's about being healthy. Well, we're not healthy. I'm not healthy, and I'm still expected to go out here at the highest level and compete for this championship. And... That's what you've got. You got to do what you got to do. Pain is temporary. Championships are forever. Yeah, that, you know, that, that's, that's a great saying until you lose it. And then you're yeah. like, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> don't you tell me that ever. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, I'm never so true. Get, you know, I'm never going to recover from this. And it's just, it's, it's a really hard thing to deal with. But it is true. Yeah. Well, Anthony oh, is like one of the most durable that. actors on TV. <laughs> oh, yeah. I played through the pain, the baby. I played through the pain, baby. All right, the last clip is from the fourth episode. We had Aaron Rodgers on for about an hour. We used 20 minutes for the show, and then we cut two more clips. One was a speed round, and one was a really nerdy football deep dive that we are running right now. True or false, you have a photographic memory and can remember just about every football play you've ever run. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to say that truthfully because I'd get tested and probably wouldn't remember something. You mean like right now when I'm going to throw yeah. a question at you? so I don't want to say yes because you're probably going to. Okay. Cards 31, Packers 10. Playoff game. The Kurt Warner game. Uh-huh. You get the ball. Um, third down and 10 from your own 20. You're down 21. Third quarter. What happens on that play? I mean, that's, that's tough. I'm going to have to. We're down 10. We're coming out. So I either hit uh, third and 10. See, that, nobody know. can remember this. This I, is my point. All right. I'm, I have no idea. Do you have the answer? Yeah. Did it hit Greg Jennings on the backside end? Or it, was, was it? it was Finley for 18 yards. Yeah, see, I don't know. Couldn't yeah, say. okay. That's an old wives' tale. Uh, That's why I don't say yes. Exactly. Would you rather have A-minus running backs and receivers, but a C-minus offensive line, or an A-minus offensive line with D-minus running backs and receivers? A-minus offensive line. Really? How come? Yeah. Because if you can protect, if you can protect the quarterback, you're going to have an opportunity to find guys open. The defense just can't cover for that long. So, and we can make uh, Green Bay. We can make guys uh, D minus. We can we can bump them up to at least a C. So, the QB club though, you said you took stuff from people. Who else did you take stuff from? Well, I like uh, I like watching Peyton. You know, Peyton I think uh, uh, did a lot for the, uh, the pre-snap for everybody. I mean, his ability the to... The Omaha stuff? Uh, that was important. I think that's really interesting. The, the root of that is, uh, is a timing mechanism where his offense can get off at the same time. And then the beauty and the brilliance of it is that it goes from that, uh, that word to you saw numerous times he would change it. He would have a code word that would mean that it wasn't coming on the Omaha. Yeah. It wasn't Omaha, Omaha, so, you know, it was, that was a dummy. And, uh, and that, was, that was a beauty. You know, he doesn't uh, take the chances that we do in, in, uh, in Green Bay when we draw somebody off sides. Yeah. But his ability to manipulate that, I mean, their, their thing, I think, was if a guy jumped off sides, the offensive lineman would move and initiate contact or just move to where you get the neutrals on a fraction where we want to snap it and, and, and take a shot down the field. But, uh, but the stuff he does pre-snap and his ability to... Uh, the thing I loved about Peyton uh, for years is especially in Indy, is they would stay in a two-by-two two set in, in any personnel group. 
Yeah. They just said, that, you know, Marvin would play one side and Reggie would play the other side. And they'd have, you know, the two tight ends or, or uh, you know, a third receiver in the slot and be able to run their entire offense out of that and not have motion or dilute it down with, you know, trying to be a, you know, offensive guru and create some incredible plays. Just our offense in two by two is going to be better than you can do. We're going to go to tempo where you just can't match it. And there's a lot to be said about that, that, that I've, I've always tried to, uh, to, uh, to get in, in the minds of, of the decision makers in Green Bay is that the simplest stuff uh, is often the stuff that works best. And I always appreciate that about Peyton. Well, the biggest things, I mean, you became the starting quarterback 2008. Yep. And over the last, I would say, 11, 12 years, really starting with when the Colts complained about the Patriots being too physical at the line of scrimmage, I think, which was in 04. And year after year, it became easier for quarterbacks. You had guys weren't getting jammed at the line. Guys aren't diving at your knees. So you had all that. Everything's shifting your way. And then on top of that, you have this huge advantage that if you guys can go to the line and be able to audible and read what you're seeing, you saw it with you, you saw it with Manning, you saw it with Brady. That seems like the biggest advantage anybody could have in sports. And yet, last year, a team wins with defense. So I don't know what to make anymore. What do uh, I make of this league? It's, it's cyclical. You know, things come back around, whether it's uh, schematics or, or the advantages. And, and you saw for years where the offense had, a, had a, uh, you know, the ability to, to communicate through a third earpiece and the defense didn't, and that changed in 2008. Yeah. Uh, where the, you know, the stealing signals was out yeah. after that. And then you saw, you know, obviously the rule changes have, have helped us out. But I think you've seen the last couple of years uh, a little bit uh, less of the enforcement, I think. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the numbers exactly are, but less of an enforcement of the uh, illegal contact, uh, pass interference to become more great. There's been more offensive pass interference. You know, we created a play in Green Bay uh, that involved uh, the number three receiver run to the flat and number one and two blocking. Yeah. And it was uh, a play to, de to, to defeat zone coverage or to get us an easy out-of-bounds play. And that's been called very tightly because it's a copycat league. So, you know, Cincinnati was doing it a bunch. Eli and, and Giants do it a ton. Yeah. It's been getting called a lot more with the offensive pass interference, even in gray areas. We got called last year. We were on a slant and a flat pattern. I threw it to the flat for a touchdown. The slant pattern is looking for the ball. James Jones runs into, into the defender inadvertently, and they called pass interference on us and wiped out the touchdown on that play which is obviously very frustrating, but the, yeah. the root of it is they don't want the offense to be able to do those picks and get those extra advantages of trying to equal things out. Now, defensive players would say, you know, it's not even close. The rule changes, and I would agree to a certain, uh, a certain uh, you know, depth, but, um, but I think they are trying to make it a little bit more balanced in, in, in little ways they can. Have you played a game where you just felt like the defense knew every single thing you were saying at the line of scrimmage? No. No, but I... I but, with the way that we're mic'd up now, with the, the guards being mic'd up and the, you know, you play a nationally televised game. Oh, yeah. They can hear every, you know, cadence you have. You have to constantly change those up. You have to change up the live words and the, and the dummy words. Uh, your cadence, I think it helps my cadence because we drop people off sides all the time. Yeah. Uh, when you have a non-rhythmic cadence, it doesn't matter how many times you hear it. It's going to be different. Uh, a scout team quarterback is going to have a hard time replicating that during the week to where when you get in the game, the adrenaline starts going. It's a big play, a big third down. You can kind of sense it when they're going to jump off sides. It's just a matter of our guys being able to have the. You can see it in their eyes. How do you sense it? Well, you can just kind of feel it. I think. Yeah. It, uh, this is when it's a big third down, whether it, it could be in the first quarter, quarter or the fourth quarter. Uh, there's there's kind of some areas between the 40s. A lot of times, you're almost in the field goal range, uh, where you just have a. You know, an idea this could be a play where they jump off sides, and then you do that, or you do you know, the flip side, where if it's ingrained in their mind so many times, they're talking about it all week in the media, like We're, we got to stay on sides, and you go on first sound. Yeah. And then you can get that little extra advantage of uh, getting the ball snapped before they're ready. People always talk about how calm you are out there, which is like was always the famous story about Joe Montana in the Super Bowl, Joe with cool. John Candy, Tom Brady's like that. Um, does a quarterback have to be cool? Is there, can a quarterback be hyper and still be good at being quarterback? I think so. I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of guys who, are, who have some Or hyper? Maybe not hyper, but uh, animated, yeah. But it seems like everybody's, like, it's almost like how, how golfers are. There's a certain calmness that you need to have, because I'm sure there's huddles where you're down three, you're on the road, everybody's got all the momentum's against you, the crowd's going crazy, and you have these 10 other guys, and they're just looking at you, and they're seeing if you're scared. Do you feel that? For sure, you do. But I think the, the thing about leadership is you have to understand the guys you're working with. 
and not everybody responds to the same type of leadership. So some guys, you need to kind of jump their ass a little bit yeah. and get on them. And some guys, you got to give them a pass and, and pat them on the ass and say, hey, it's, it's fine. You know, I mean, if you jump their ass, they'll, they'll be hurt? Their feelings will be hurt? Well, some guys maybe. Yeah. But some guys, they need that. You know, maybe they respond better to that type of, of energy and, and, uh, and criticism. So, you know, it depends. I think you can be a, you know, more of an amped up guy if you got a team, a younger team that responds better to... Uh, yelling at them or, you know, ripping their ass in, in the, you know, in the huddle. Uh, our guys are, are a lot more uh, laid back, I would say, and, and kind of taking on more of my demeanor where we know what we have to do to be successful. Yeah. And no yelling or showing a guy up on the field or showing a guy up in the huddle or on the sidelines is really going to help us accomplish what we want to accomplish, and that's being efficient and winning football games. So, you know, we kind of we have a good feel. I think it starts with the offensive line and, and kind of trickles down to the skill positions. What do you think, if there's one thing people you wish they knew about the quarterback position, either how hard it is or some little fact that you just don't feel like they know, what is it? That's tough because we, you know, we talk about it so much. They know, they know, uh, they know everything about uh, about it. They hear everything that we say. Um, so you feel like you're overexposed. That's maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Well, yeah, the know too well, much not yet. I think the next thing is when they put the camera in your in your uh, in your helmet, and then they re they see exactly what you're uh, what you're looking at every time. But uh, you know, I think at times people have said, and it's you know, it's a compliment that I make it look easy or it looks yeah. too easy out there. Uh, and I just try and remind them it's not easy. It's tough to do what we do. It takes a lot of preparation. I've always said that we win games between Monday and Saturday. Yeah. The way you prepare allows you to play with that confidence in the field. People, you know, why are you so calm on the field or confident? Uh, it's because I've played out every scenario from Monday to Saturday. Yeah. So when I get out there, I'm not surprised a lot. I think if you ask, you know, the great ones, you ask Tom and, and Drew and, and, and Peyton, they'd say the same thing. You're, you're winning games uh, through your preparation during the week. That's it for the special edition of the Any Given Wednesday bonus clip podcast marathon. You can check out the new splash page that we put up on HBO now that has all the clips and check out the show. We do not have a show this week. We come back next week, uh, Wednesday, and we're on for the next four weeks after that. You can watch it on HBO Wednesday nights, 10 o'clock. You can watch us on HBO now. You can watch a ton of replays on HBO and HBO 2. And we will be back with a real BS podcast with a guest later in the week. Thanks. Anytime y'all want to see me again, rewind this track right here. Close your eyes. And picture me rolling.